right, here we are. Big Ray, how you doing, bud? I'm, I'm great. I'm excited for tonight, Nick. How are you? Um, excellent. Yeah, back in action here. You're listening to Hard Times on Film, the podcast celebrating the movies of Charles Bronson and beyond. Uh, and this is an extra special bonus episode that we've arranged over the past few weeks to commemorate something rather momentous. We all know that uh, Charles Bronson died back on August 30th, 2003 at the age of 81. And I personally was driving through Wisconsin that day. And when the news of his death broke on the radio, I pulled into the next town and I raised a glass to his memory with a few strangers at a roadside bar. Just over 19 years later, November 3rd, 2021 marks Bronson's 100th birthday. And so to commemorate this important occasion, Ray and I reached out to someone we've both come to admire a great deal, a researcher and writer who is one of the world's leading authorities on the life and work of Charles Bronson. Paul Talbot is a film and pop culture historian. He has authored several books, most notably Bronson's Loose, the making of the Death Wish films, and Bronson's Loose Again, on the set with Charles Bronson. Paul Talbot has written numerous articles for print magazines and online sites and has produced commentary tracks, on-camera interviews, and booklet essays for numerous Blu-ray and DVD releases. He's a notable filmmaker, an actor, and we were absolutely thrilled to have him with us today to talk about Charles Bronson on the man's centennial birthday. So, Paul, welcome to Hard Times on Film. Thanks for having me, uh, Nick and Ray. Glad to be here, Hard Times on Film. And like I told you guys earlier, you know, I, I'm glad for the invite because I never run out of things to say about Charles Bronson. Right on. Well, we're going to put that to the test tonight, Paul. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Ray, take it away, man. When we first started talking about getting this podcast going, Nick and I, we both sort of went our separate ways and started doing some research, you know, eager to bring tidbits to our discussions that maybe the other one hadn't heard. And so I remember going on Amazon, looking and finding, you can get some old paperback biographies from the seventies of Bronson, but then discovering your books and thinking I've just hit the gold mine. And I ordered up uh, Bronson's Loose again first. And I remember contacting Nick and saying like, check this out, what, what I've got. And, and he said, oh, yeah, I've already got that. Yeah. My, <laughs> mine came a couple of weeks ago. So we both discovered you immediately upon trying to build up our research to get started here. And speaking of the uh, 100 years on from Bronson's birth, our first question we wanted to throw at you was getting this going. And, you know, we're on social media uh, a bit with regard to Bronson and with the podcast and, and looking around on the Internet. There's quite a lot of Bronson around. A lot of people seem to be celebrating Bronson. You go on YouTube, there's a ton of Bronson. Pretty much every one of the man's films seems to be getting a, a collector's treatment and, and re-release. So in your estimation, how would you describe the current popularity of Charles Bronson? Yeah, it's fantastic. His cult popularity is huge now, which is great. You know, what, what keeps things going is the younger generation. You know, what happens a lot of times is, uh, a band or an actor or something will be popular for a while and then they'll fade out and uh, kind of disappear. But what's happened with Charles Bronson, which is fantastic, is there's like uh, older people like me who were fans with him back when he was making movies. And then there's people, um, I don't know how old you guys are, but there's people who, um, you know, of course, weren't even born when he was making the movies and they're young people who are discovering it. I go to a lot of those um conventions like the movie conventions where people trade stuff you know buy posters and stuff like that and I see a lot of uh, very young guys in their teens and 20s they'll have Bronson t-shirts on and even Bronson tattoos on so the fantastic thing about nowadays we have all this availability and 
Uh, you know, some young guy will check out a Charles Bronson movie and love it and become hooked on it. So it's his cult popularity is fantastic. You know, that leads right into my next question for you, actually, is um, it's a two-part question. When we grew up, there was video stores filled with action movies. You'd go to the action section, you'd see all these great covers, St. Ives, Telephon, Death Hunt. And so my questions are, um, you know, why should why should young people care about Charles Bronson? Like, what what is the the seed that you want to plant in people's minds about, about Charles Bronson? And then from your perspective, what would be, what would you recommend as a good starting point for, for a young person in terms of the man's massive filmography? What's a good launching point? Well, in terms of uh, why people would watch him, he's very unusual, uh, very unusual face. And the thing about him, when he became a star, you know, he became a star in his forties and did not look like the traditional uh, movie star. So that's what really attracted people to him uh, very strange, unusual, almost like an arresting face. And the, the interesting thing is, you know, he first became a star over in Europe, uh, places like uh, France, uh, especially. They like the more interesting type movie actors, the ones that have the more interesting face, the ones who have a face look like they've been around, like they've lived. And interesting, too, uh, over in Europe, his big cult following when he first became a star, there was a lot of women. He had a tremendous female following. He was a romantic star over there as well. So people, I think, who see him now, again, they see something they haven't seen anymore. Very interesting, unforgettable face as someone who looks like he's really been around. You know, when he's playing somebody, a cowboy or somebody in the military, you can believe it. You can see in that face and say, hey, OK, this guy obviously has been around. He's seen some fistfights. He's seen some rough times. He's seen some hard times. So being unique, I think, certainly is what one of the things that continues his cult popularity. And especially with nowadays, you know, we've gone away from that. The movie actors I like the most are the, the traditional ones like uh, Edward G. Robinson, Humphrey Bogart, Gary Cooper, people like that. Again, this is before people had, uh, you know, Botox and plastic surgery and stuff like that. You know, we had these really creviced real people, which nowadays uh, we don't see see as much. And then I guess to answer your question about where I would say to start if you're a new Bronson uh, viewer, uh, certainly I would say the best would be The Mechanic, 1972 movie where he plays a hitman. That movie starts off with a fantastic 20-minute uh, opening. There's no dialogue at all. The, the screen is completely commanded by Bronson. Again, I don't want to give too much of it away, but it starts off where he's setting up this elaborate hit. And again, there's no dialogue at all. It's just completely based on his face, his persona. So if the first 20 minutes of the mechanic don't turn you into a Charles Bronson fan, there's no hope for you. You, you just won't <laughs> get it. So the mechanic is the, what I always point people to say as your starting point. I remember when we were younger and we used to have our answering machine and uh, Nick, I know you used to do this too. We'd, we'd take clips of movies and make it the recording on the answering machine. And I remember I had um, the clip about him, you know, squeezing the ball of wax because it develops the strength. I had that right. clip on my, that was my answering machine message for the longest time. So yeah, I think years. that's, a, yeah, I think that's a great, great place to start for sure. Are there some place? Are there some places in the world where still, like, say France, where his um, popularity continues, maybe over and above even his cult status in other places? 
Yeah, I would certainly say probably um, places, uh, countries like France, where a lot of, uh, you know, there's a huge um, film scholarship community there. Again, in the United States of America, there's a lot of people who watch movies, a lot of people watch the older movies, but in the United States, a lot of people really just want to know the new stuff. They really won't watch anything that's more than three months old, which is why we make a new Spider-Man movie every, you know, every two years as a new guy playing Spider-Man. Whereas over in France, they're more, uh, they like more of the older stuff. They'll be more responsive to a lot of the older stuff. So France, um, not just the fans who like the action stuff, but over in France, movies like Rider on the Rain and certainly Once Upon a Time in the West, those are actually studied more, meaning people look at those as some of the great movies ever made. They will actually study them as art films, not just action films. Uh, for example, um, you know, like we're talking about, this is about to be Bronson's 100th uh, birthday. So I'm getting a lot of calls. A lot of people are doing... Um, you know, celebrations, either it's just them themselves, you know, getting buddies together to watch some movies, or they're at some of their local theaters, they're showing some of their movies. For example, in Finland, uh, some guys I know are at one of the local theaters there, they're showing a double feature of um, Mr. Majestic and 10 to Midnight, and they asked me to do an introduction for that. So over in some of the small European countries like that, the, the cult following is is big over there, possibly bigger than the United States. We, uh, I wonder if it's too late, Nick, for us to get something like that going. We might have to hustle. Yeah, up <laughs> in here in Canada. Canada. We might have to, yeah. <laughs> um, thinking of, of some of the stuff we like to talk about uh, on this podcast, um, one of the things we like to have some fun with is, is Bronson's look. Uh, and we jump, we don't do the movies in order. So we jump all around uh, in his career. And he, he had this push and pull throughout his career with the mustache and, and, and no mustache and, you know, his hair of various lengths. When you think of Bronson, when you picture him, what's, what is the quintessential uh, Bronson look for you? Well, of course, there has to be the mustache. He first grew that mustache for a movie called Villa Rides, which was made just before he became a star. Um, in Villa Rides, he plays a, a real character. He plays a Mexican revolutionary. So I can't think of the guy, the character's name right now, but he wanted to look like the actual character. And that character had the mustache, so he grew it for that. And then um, when he made the movie Rider on the Rain, which again, launched him as a huge star over in Europe, also as a huge romantic star. At that point, he realized, uh, okay, I'm as big as I've ever been. I'm not going to mess with the formula. So I'm going to keep this mustache. So he kept that mustache for the rest of his career, only with very few exceptions. For example, um, Hard Times was set in the 1930s. So he shaved it off to match the 1930s uh, era. And the Valachi Papers, which was a true story. He played, again, a real character, a mafia figure. So he shaved his, his mustache off of that. And then um, The Indian Runner. Uh, back in the 1990s, he shaved it off to, for that to look different. And then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, is that, that's, I, I guess that's it. Because I, I, I have a whole discussion of that in one of my books about his mustache. So I think those are the only times he did. And many times he would refuse to cut it off. For example, Telephone, Don Siegel, the director, said, why don't you shave your mustache off for this one, at least for the second part when you go undercover. And he said, no mustache, no Bronson. So, and <laughs> I know on uh, Borderline, the, the director of that, 
again, wanted Bronson to shave his mustache to give him a different look, but, you know, Bronson refused. He was not going to mess with that trademark, that, that trademark look. So the definitive look for me would be, I guess, Mr. Majestic. He has the mustache and he also has that semi-shaggy hair. The interesting thing about Bronson, even though he was in his 40s and 50s uh, in the 1970s, he still tried, you know, he still kept his look fresh. So he had that shaggy haircut that was popular, not too shaggy. It was still, uh, you know, it was still cut and groomed. So the definitive Charles Bronson look for me is the Mr. Majestic here, where he had that semi-shaggy hair and that, you know, fantastic mustache. When we were introduced to him, you know, in the in the eighties, he still had just an incredible head of hair. And, and uh, Ray and I went to see uh, Death Wish Vive in the theater. It was the only theatrical release that we got to watch together. Uh, I remember even then, as a young person, just thinking, "Wow, like, geez, I hope I grew up to have a head of hair like that guy." You know, among other traits, obviously. Yeah, he had that fantastic head of hair, and that, of course, was real. He never wore a hairpiece or anything, and. You know, he, he kept it looking natural. You know, he had that little bit of gray in the front, you know, so it, it still he wasn't trying to look like, you know, a young boy. He didn't, you know, diet. As you said, he had that fantastic, enviable head of hair. And it wasn't a hairpiece or, you know, colored in with spray or anything. You know, that was a fantastic. He was blessed with an extraordinary head of hair. You know, he's such an, an enigmatic and, and, and is a mysterious guy. Now, you, your research looks mainly at, at the films and the filmmaking, but have you ever had contact with his relatives and further to that you know as one of the few contemporary film historians who's done significant research into Charles Bronson how, how well do you feel you've gotten to know him as a person through your work uh to answer about uh the family I made some attempts to uh contact the family I don't want to get, get too far into it but it gets kind of can complicated when somebody has uh, children and then later marriages and stuff like that. So it gets kind of complicated like that because they might say, well, I'll talk to you, but this person can't be in it. And, you know, you get kind of complicated legal issues and stuff like that. So to answer your question, I did not get too far. We're trying to talk to the actual um, family. And to answer your question, um, how well did I know him? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I really uh, don't want to say that I know him too well because I might be wrong. You know, I never really talked to him. And you never, you never know anybody's true story. I mean, any of us, you know, you could talk to somebody's friends, families, coworkers, and you you try to put out the information what you have, and then ultimately the reader has to decide and kind of fill in fill it in for themselves. But he certainly was a very uh, mysterious person, as he said. He the one quote he said was, he says, "I don't have any friends, and I don't want any. My children are my friends." So he certainly was a definitely a, a family man who didn't mix too with too many people. Well, one follow up to that, uh, Paul is is um, and you're listening to Hard Times on Film. Uh, our guest today is Paul Talbot. Paul, just a follow up is: Have you ever seen any of his painted works? Like, I know he was an avid painter for quite a long time, but I I've, I can't find any evidence of that. I'll try to send some pictures to you. Um, of course, I haven't seen the actual pictures in person. I've seen photographs of his pictures. There's a couple online, uh, one of him doing a self-portrait, uh, one of him painting a picture of his daughter. And then I went to, um, part of my research, I do a lot of work at the, um, the New York Library for the Performing Arts. They have a lot of, um, it's, a lot of their stuff isn't online yet. They have actual physical copies of magazines. And there was one picture, I don't know why, I was so busy. I copied a bunch of stuff, but I didn't get that. But there was a really nice picture of him with a painting he did that was really surrealistic. It was almost like 
if you know that show Night Gallery from the 1970s with Rod Serling, it was a, it would show these strange paintings. It was almost like something from that, a very fantastic surrealistic painting. So to answer your question, I've seen some of his work and that's something that's interesting. Uh, that's kind of how he started as an actor. You know, when he got out of the army, he got involved with uh, theater. He wanted to paint like the backdrops for live theater. Then he heard that the actors actually get paid more money. So that's how he kind of segued into that. But he did a lot of painting. In fact, he did a lot of actual, um, a lot of his stuff was shown in galleries. In fact, he didn't use his name because of course he wanted people to judge it based on the art, not based on, oh wow, a Charles Bronson picture and didn't want people to judge him and say like, hey, why don't you paint any guns or <laughs> paint somebody, paint a fist fight or something like that. So um, yeah, to, uh, to kind of answer your question, that, that's something that's not really covered that much. I would like to know more about his painting, but I haven't been able to find too much about it. But I have seen some examples of the work, which is very, very interesting. Wow. Uh, thinking thinking of, of the research that you do, is there any are there any movies where you maybe started down the trail and you'd really hope to do a chapter on, but there just wasn't enough to find, maybe not enough living cast members to interview or or what have you? Yeah, there was a lot like that. Um, one interesting one, uh, The White Buffalo, if you guys are familiar with that, a Western from 1977, where he's playing Wild Bill, Bill Hickok chasing a, a giant white buffalo. Uh, at the time when I was doing the, uh, the second book, I didn't have enough information on that. But recently I have done some interviews and I've put that together. So I am doing a commentary track for the White Buffalo, which will come out in 2022. And I'm hoping to do a third Bronson book with an extensive chapter on that. Uh, so the White Buffalo is one I wish I had done, but I am planning on doing. And um, another strange one, uh, Twinkie, a uh, very unusual movie that made right on the crest of his stardom in the late 60s, very uh, politically incorrect today. He plays a, a man who's like 38, who's a writer, gets married to a teenage girl. It's a very strange movie. And Susan George plays the, the, the wife in that. And I tried to interview her, but I wasn't able to. So that's why I didn't do a, a chapter on that one. That movie's called Twinkie. And something else that um, I didn't have enough information at the time, but during the 1970s, Bronson was trying really hard to make this movie called Dollar 98, also known as 98, which was going to be an autobiographical movie about a coal miner and the characters he related to in that. The original story was written by himself and Jill Ireland. And he planned on starring in it with Jill Island, and he was going to direct it. And the script went through many, many drafts with some notable screenwriters and ultimately never got made. But after I wrote my second book, I got a hold of one of the drafts for Doll 98. So if I had gotten that beforehand, I would have done a chapter on that for the book. You know, the, the great unmade Charles Bronson movie. Amazing. I'm going to look forward to that. I've, I've read about that obviously in your book, but also in a couple other interviews as well. And it seems like such a missed opportunity, like for big Bronson's fans, that is like the, that's the prize is what was like hearing that he had written it based on his own experience, what that script right. must be like. So you've read, you've read the script. Yes, I did. I got something interesting that happened a few years ago. Um, Charles Bronson's agent uh, when he passed away, um, a lot of his, what happens, a lot of people 
uh, they'll pass away. So like they're, before they die or after, their archive, meaning all their scripts, all their papers, will get donated to a university. Uh, this agent was not able to find a university to take it all. So there was a big auction on, um, uh, on the internet where the guy was auctioning all these Charles Bronson scripts. Many of them were early drafts. Many of them were stuff that was submitted to Bronson, but he didn't do for whatever reason. And many of them also had like little notes in them where they would send it to Bronson's agent and a reader would say, I suggest that Charlie does this. I don't like this, et cetera. So I, they were very expensive, of course. So I wasn't able to buy a lot. But the $1.98 one I paid a lot for because I said I have to have that one. So I did buy that one. I bought some of the other scripts too. So, and it also, in addition to having the script, it had the notes in it saying what they recommended, you know, saying Charlie should do this, Charlie should not do this, et cetera. Wow. The chapter you did in Hard Times, something similar comes up there. There, there seems to be a lot of, uh, of that film that ended up on the cutting room floor. And I'm just curious, do you, do you think any of that lost footage still exists? Or are there other treasures out there that you know of that might still exist? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty positive that Hard Times footage is long gone because I'm actually surprised that any movie that's long, older than 90 days still exists in any form like I said, because nobody wants to watch all the movies. Right. But seriously, they really don't save that stuff. And in fact, uh, Walter Hill has gone on record saying that the version of Hard Times that exists is his cut. So that's the way he wanted it. The stuff that was cut out of Hard Times was um, additional fight scenes. In fact, in my book, I have some um, images of the deleted scenes. And what happened with that was while they were making the film, Columbia Pictures, who um, financed the film, was having a really bad time then. And some outside investors came in and invested in a lot of the Columbia Pictures movies. One of them they invested in was Hard Times. So they insisted while the film was being made, said, we need more fight scenes, shoot some more fight scenes. So that was kind of added um, against Walter Hill's wishes. So again, the final version that Walter Hill cut down is the director's cut. That's what he wants. So all that footage, um, if it does exist, and I'm pretty much convinced it does not, you know, that would kind of be like, uh, you know, you don't go against a director's cut. You see what I'm saying? If it, if it was found, it would just be put as deleted scenes. But to answer your question, sadly, unfortunately, I think that's gone. I guess I was just hoping you might say that you had, had heard from uh, Hill and he has a can somewhere and he's thinking about putting some, right. in some extra footage uh, for, for extra features on, a, on, on an upcoming uh, release. But uh, the heart, you, you broke our heart. That's okay. That's okay. Right. Well, broke my heart too, because believe me, if I found that footage, I would make my own fan cut, you know? <laughs> exactly. So, put that in. Yeah. But also uh, another example, uh, another example, um, Breakout, the Charles Bronson movie Breakout, that also had a lot of things cut out but for legal reasons. It was based on a true story. And then when the film was finished, one of the people involved with the true story threatened to sue. So they had to uh, dub some voices and also cut a lot of stuff out. That movie's actually kind of confusing with it because they had to cut some stuff out for legal reasons. And also for pacing reasons, there's some photographs from that movie of Charles Bronson and Randy Quaid dressed as priests. There was a scene where their characters go into the prison disguised as priests to help plan the escape. That was edited. And I worked on um, the, in England, the uh, Blu-ray company Indicator. I worked with them on the breakout DVD, Blu-ray. I helped, I did a commentary, wrote the booklet essay, 
in, heavily involved with the extras. And we had Sony look for that footage and uh, they could not find it. In fact, I, one friend of mine, uh, well, no, someone I know online, he insisted that he saw that footage when he in Japan or China. And then, of course, we had them search China and Japan and they didn't know what we were talking about. So sadly, to answer your question, when scenes are lost, they are lost for good. And another example is uh, Cabo Blanco. Uh, I don't know if you guys have watched that one yet, but yeah, you did. Okay. And that's another example where that movie originally ran about two and a half, no, uh, probably you know, right at two hours. And over in Europe, it did play in that form. When it came to the United States, it was heavily edited. And again, the longer version seems to have disappeared. The producer of that movie, I've been in contact with him. He owns the rights to it. And uh, so it seems like the long version of Cabo Blanco is long lost unless, um, maybe some collector who collected a 35 millimeter print, but that probably would have surfaced by now. But Cabo Blanco is another one that I wish they could find that extra 30 minutes. Cause I, I have a, a script of that. I have a copy of that early draft and um, a lot of stuff was cut out. I did the commentary for Cabo Blanco and I fill in the blanks on that one. Usually whenever I get to do one like a breakout in Cabo Blanco, that have had a lot of scenes cut, I get to fill in the blanks because I have the script so I can tell people what's missing here, what should have been here, things like that. Is that the Cabo Blanco release over, is that Indicator again? Or is that the Kino Lorber one? That's, that's the Kino Lorber one, yes. Oh, okay. Well, I, I've got that one, but I haven't listened to your commentary on it. So I'm going to get on that this weekend. Okay. I was going to, yeah, I was I was going to sort of circle back though because you were talking about, you know, nobody wants to see a movie older than 90 days but at the same time all these additions are coming out and different companies you know in different countries and then sometimes in the same country i guess the their license lapses and another one gobbles it up right away um like did are these selling pretty well like i get the impression people must there must be quite a large market for bronson uh dvds and blu-rays oh yeah there is there's um you know, we have the collector's market. Of course, nowadays, most people will watch stuff on streaming, of course. But the Blu-ray market is still strong. There is still that hardcore um, element who does do it, who does collect them and do watch. And then to answer your question, you know, the collector's market is strong. And the collector's market is strong for the Bronson titles, especially the major ones. For I know a couple ones, there's been almost like a bidding war. You know, some label will want a particular movie. Or in two or three labels, we'll have to bid to see who gets the rights for it. So certainly some of the bigger cult Bronson movies, there is a, a strong following for it. And then um, when they see the Blu-ray, not only do they want the picture in the ultimate format, but they do want to have as much extras as they can. You know, we try to have uh, interviews with people who are still alive. I also tend to midnight... Um, for that Blu-ray, in addition to doing the commentary track, I also produced the um, the on-camera interviews. So we tracked down some of the um, producers, actors, and do on-camera interviews. I also did that for um, the Valdez Hosses and Valachi Papers. They were written by a man named Stephen Geller. He was a screenwriter. He's still alive. So I was able to track him down and do on-camera interviews for that. So the people who do collect these Blu-rays do want as much supplements as they can get. 
you've done a lot of interviews with people who worked with, with Bronson um, for your books. And did anyone stand out to you in particular for being really fun to speak with or really uh, illuminating forthcoming with information? Like who, who stood out for you in terms of the interviews you got to do over the last few years? Yeah, I would say probably the best would be uh, Michael Winner. He was the first, when I was first doing my uh, Bronson's Loose, the making of the Death Wish films, when I first started doing that, uh, I said, well, uh, I need to interview Michael Winner. Of course, he was alive at the time. He's passed away. I said, if I don't interview Michael Winner, there's no point in doing this. So I can't remember how I found his address, but I found his address online, wrote to him. Back, I didn't even have an email or a phone number. I had to physically mail a letter to London. And the I got an email back from his assistant who said, Mr. Winner will speak with you at this date and time. And I, you know, of course, I live in the United States. He lived in England. So I think his time when I called him was like, like at five o'clock in the morning. So I had to get up and do the interview where it's five o'clock in the morning, my time. And we had a great interview. And I, of course, I recorded it, spoke to me for like uh, an hour. And he was absolutely hilarious. Lots of good stories. So certainly Michael Winter was the first and uh, probably my favorite of all of them. And there's also a very important interview was that one too. Wow. I wonder if you've ever thought about releasing that audio in some, in some form or, or even just the transcript of the interview. Uh, I know fans like us would, would certainly eat that up. Right. I, I've been asked to do that. And actually I, the reason I haven't is, you know, when I got the permission from him, it was just to use uh, the quotes in print. You, you see what I'm saying? Not to use that. And if it's, you know, and even though he's, he's passed away just for legal reasons and because what he asked me to. That's why I, I haven't done that. Um, an, another question I wanted to ask you is uh, you, you mentioned a lot of movies uh, just now, great ones too, like uh, Breakout, Valdez Horses, uh, Cabo Blanco. Like I love all these movies. And, and on the podcast, we talk about, you know, some are slam dunks and then some get really close to being just classic movies, but maybe there's one element that's holding them back like maybe it was maybe it was the budget or or you know some studio interference or, or whatever it happened to be what's a bronson movie for you that that you think maybe deserves to be considered uh among his classics or maybe got really close and there's just something that prevented it from getting over the over the line uh one would be i think breakout um 1975 I like that movie. In fact, it has a personal affection for me because uh, I saw that one in 1975. I actually was able to walk when I was in elementary school. A friend of mine, we could walk to a neighborhood theater and see it. So that was the first Bronson movie I saw actually in a theater. And the problem with Breakout is, uh, as I said earlier, that was based on a true story. And then for legal reasons, they had to change it. Some of the people, or many of the people who were still alive, one of the particular people in particular, it, it's about um, a man is uh, put in prison. Uh, he claims he's innocent. The true story is he claimed that his, uh, I can't remember, was his grandfather or his uncle? Anyway, his, uh, one of his relatives, he claimed, framed him and had him incarcerated and was keeping him in there. So the person who he claimed put him in jail was still alive. So that person said he was going to shut, you know, stop the film. The film was already completed. So Columbia Pictures was like, oh, we're not going to throw this movie away. So they had to edit it. And it makes the movie kind of confusing. So I think Breakout, if that one could have been uh, restored, the scenes that were cut out could have been um, 
a better film. And I also think maybe Breakout, if they had a little more of a bigger budget to do some more spectacular action scenes, it may have been a, a, a more exciting, a, a better film too. The story of Breakout, very interesting. In fact, nowadays, I wish they would, somebody would remake that. They would make a really good mini series because it takes place over several, several years. The, the Breakout story would make a really good uh, mini series, a very violent mini series. Bronson looks so great in Breakout too. Like if you like the Mr. Majestic look of Bronson, that's about as close as he gets to repeating that look in that cat and the sleeveless uh, shirt and, and a similar mustache and hair. Right. Yeah, like he's really charismatic all through that movie. Right. Yeah, that whole era, I guess, you know, Mr. Majestic, Death Wish, Breakout, you know, he had, um, that's when he had that hair that same length, you know. And then, of course, after Breakout, he made Hard Times, which took place in the 30s, so he had to cut his hair and shave his mustache to look like the 1930s. So like you said, it was right. That little era there was you know, my favorite of the way Bronson looked, his hair and mustache. And then another film that I wish uh, could have been better, um, The Sea Wolf, the 1993 TV movie, which I love. That's my favorite of the latter-day Bronson films. I wish that movie could have been made. Again, it's a made-for-cable movie. I wish that one had been made maybe um, 12 years earlier when Bronson was in his prime and with a bigger budget. That made like it had been made like around the... Cabo Blanco era, when people were still putting big, big budgets into Bronson movies, and he was more in his physical prime. The Seawolf, I wish, could have been made earlier with a more sumptuous budget. And further to what Ray's talking about, we we watch a lot of these films, and we're just struck by the outfits that he wears, and thinking to ourselves, like, "Wow, you know, this guy looks fantastic in the in the three tone suits he's wearing in Ten to Midnight or." Uh, you know, he's on the beach and uh, evil that men do. He looks awesome in his flowing, his flowing shirt with no collar. Have you, uh, have you watched any of these films and then, and then found yourself going out uh, to the, to the department store and, and picking up uh, an article of clothing or two based on your, your love for the man's style? Oh yeah. Well, I'm obsessed with the way he looks with all his clothes. I, every time I watch one of his movies, I study the clothes. Of course, what I wish I had was his physique. That's what I really wish I could wear. But that's out of the Us question. Too. Don't we yeah. all? But uh, yeah, to answer your question, um, he has some fantastic outfits in The Mechanic. The Mechanic, um, the outfits that he wears in that movie, they were came from Europe. Then actually, uh, a guy who bought a lot of the clothing for, um, can't think of his name. I think his last name is Marx, maybe Harrison Marx. I'm not sure. But anyway, he bought a lot of clothes for, like the Elvis Presley movies that he wore. And he bought the clothes for Bronson for The Mechanic. So those are all... Those at the time were state-of-the-art, you know, fresh, hot styles. Violent City is another one where he's wearing these really nice uh, clothes, especially in Violent City. There's like a beige, um, uh, kind of like a brown beige uh, suede coat that he wears. It has a belt on it. I love that one. I love all the outfits and the mechanic. Uh, one thing I do have, I do have a woolen uh, overcoat, kind of like the one he wears in the original Death Wish. I do. I have that. And I wear that. In the wintertime. I love that. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? Yeah, so it's cut like that. And then I also have um, just recently got uh, a suede fringe jacket, like the one he wears in the white buffalo. So I'm looking forward to start wearing that when it gets cooler. And I also got um, in the white buffalo, he wears these strange uh, sunglasses that were uh, made for the film. And the interesting about that is, of course, when the white buffalo came out, 
they didn't market the white buffalo sunglasses to buy. But those sunglasses were replicated for, uh, what's it called, Django Unchained. Jamie Foxx wears those in Django Unchained. Those are exact replicas of the white buffalo. So because Django Unchained was so popular, you can go online and they don't have an official one, but you can find replicas. So I bought, so I now have a replica of the sunglasses Bronson wore in the white buffalo. So I wear those proudly driving down the road. <laughs> you have to, if you're ever riding a train, certainly yeah. you'll have to. Yeah, really. That's how we meet him in the movie wearing that's those really, things. It's yeah. great. One thing I do want I, he, in uh, Death Wish 4, the first, the opening scene of that, he has this really nice long leather black overcoat that's cut exactly like the, the overcoat he has in the original Death Wish. But I haven't been able to find one of those. It'd probably be too expensive. But that's one I really want. And the striped suit he wears in the Balachi papers, that, of course, is a classic suit that was popular at the time. Uh, if you watch the original Scarface, Paul Muni wears that. Uh, little Caesar, Edward G. Robinson wears that. So I would love to have that kind of suit too. And oh, oh, and Mr. Majestic, he has this, it's like a, what's it called? Tartan, I think it's called, or a plaid type coat. Has kind of like a little cape in the back. I love that. I wish I could find that. And one interesting thing is, you know, Bronson had it in his contract once he became a star that he gets to keep his, his clothes. So he got to keep all that stuff. And it's interesting. Some of the stuff shows up later. For example, um, it's a gray tweed jacket he wears in Stone Killer, St. Ives, and the mechanic. So a lot of his clothes will reappear. And in Death Wish 5, he's outside a lot in Canada. He wears a really thick winter coat. And he wears that again in the TV movie Donato and Daughter. So if you're a fan like me, you see a lot of the outfits will pop up again. And I wonder what happened to those clothes, because like one of his producers told me that Bronson had in his house this massive closet, you know, with all these clothes. So I, I wondered what happened to that. Did they have uh, some kind of an auction, you know? But yeah, I wonder where all those Could be in the Smithsonian or something. Yeah, exactly. Some of them should be in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Yeah. It should be part of the Bronson Library that all those universities passed on. Exactly. Like, what yeah. were they what were they thinking? Right, really. Yeah. <laughs> when you know, when when you talk about details like that, like when I watched the Ten to Midnight uh, with a commentary on, I was struck by just the minutia that you bring. Like it is such a good time watching it with with your commentary. And there's so many things like the the brand of the jacket and like oh see that thing sitting on the table that was popular at the time how how many of those observations or observations that you have just made loving Bronson and how many do you find in recent like the thing about the coat did you just notice that coat popping up again and again yeah usually well of course usually sometimes I'll see it when I'm just watching the movie and then of course when I'm preparing a commentary track. I always want to fill it nonstop with information. I'm always paranoid that I'll have 90 seconds of silence and people will turn me off. And also with some commentary tracks, uh, some of the studios are very strict about what you can say. Sometimes they'll cut stuff out for various reasons. So if ever you're listening to my commentary tracks and there's more than five seconds of silence, I've been edited, you know, because... <laughs> Again, I'm paranoid. I want to fill that. So to answer your question, some stuff I've noticed 
originally, but other times, you know, when I'm doing a commentary track, I have to watch the movie over and over and over again. So I have to make sure I try to fill up everything, you know, a prop, a, a style of tie, a location that I can identify. So, you know, a tremendous amount of research. So to answer your question, some stuff like if I see Bronson's coat and I recognize it, I'll just know that when I'm watching the movie to enjoy it. Other stuff I'll have to watch the film over and over again if I'm doing commentary to make sure I have to fill in the blanks. This is Hard Times on Film Podcast. We're talking today with Paul Talbot, who's a, who's a filmmaker, an author, and a pop culture historian. We're just delighted to be here today because we're celebrating the films of Charles Bronson, but more specifically, Charles Bronson's centennial birthday. And uh, in a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to sign off and, and let Paul get on with his evening. But uh, we, we have just a couple more questions for you, Paul. And thank you so much again for joining us and making time to talk about Charles Bronson on, on this momentous occasion with us. I'm glad to be here. And like I said, I'll, I can talk all night. So <laughs> I never <laughs> run out of things to say about Charles Bronson. So. <laughs> well, we, we, we'll keep you for a few more minutes for sure. We really, this is just great. Um, I was going to ask you, one of the things we do in all of our episodes is we, we talk about the film and, and we've showcased uh, the entrance, the Bronson entrance. Does anything stick out for you? Any, any film or two that you, you remember back and you think, oh yeah, that was just a, a quintessential or just a classic Bronson entrance. What's your favorite? Yeah, I would say again, you know, like uh, we had talked about the mechanic earlier and I would say that one also has the great entrance. You know, it's a, you got a blank screen, you just see the sky and then he pops up into frame, flips his hair. You know, he's got that long hair and just flips that and just the screen just explodes with charisma. You know, again, that's the, the there's Bronson, you know, it's like, oh my, you know, the, we see nothing. And then the face of the greatest movie star in cinema history. So the mechanic, <laughs> I think, the mechanic has the greatest Bronson entrance, uh, in my opinion, certainly without a doubt. And, you know, I've listened to a lot of interviews with you and, and obviously read your books. And I know that you often will differentiate between the the ensemble movies he was involved with and also the ones where he was the star of the ensembles. Does, does any of those stick out for you as, as a, as a particular favorite? It's really a tie between the magnificent seven, the dirty dozen and the great escape. I really can't decide on those. The great escape. Uh, I became a Charles Bronson fan uh, in the 1970s when I was very young uh, my mom is a big Elvis Presley fan. We used to watch all the Elvis Presley movies together. So I first saw Kid Galahad and Charles Bronson plays Elvis's manager in that. So that made me a Charles Bronson fan. Then a few days later, my dad and I on TV watched his favorite movie, which was The Great Escape. And I was like, hey, it's that same guy again. So uh, Great Escape has a, of the ensembles has a personal feeling for me because I watched it with my dad. It's one of the first ones that made... Um, me a Charles Bronson fan but also Dirty Dozen and Magnificent Seven are also extraordinary well that's, that's this is just a, a follow-up question I guess but um, you know he had such a long career and his filmography stretches over five decades uh, for, for people who are listening to this who you know they're probably just casual fans maybe they don't they don't have the the number of films under the belt that, that we do certainly what would you recommend if you can think back to each of the five decades? Can you pick one movie out from each decade that you, that you think people should uh, make sure they don't miss? Sure. And uh, one thing that's interesting, there's also, you know, different kinds of Bronson fans. There's people like, uh, of course, myself and you guys, 
uh, we like his whole career. We like to watch stuff from the 50s where he had small pots and TVs, the 60s where he did the ensemble stuff, uh, the late 60s and 70s where because this huge solo star. And then, of course, the 80s where he did the, uh, the, the sleazy, violent type stuff. And so those all have different uh, fans. Some people don't like everything. And so to answer your question, uh, my favorite from the 1950s, I would recommend 1954 Drumbeat, which is a Western starring Alan Ladd. Drumbeat, he plays a Native American. He played a Native, Native American several times in his career. Drumbeat is a fantastic Western. He plays, uh, it's a true story. He plays a villainous uh, Native American named Captain Jack. And he is fantastic in that. In fact, he started, his real name was Charles Buczynski. Drum, and he, in his early career, that's what he would call himself. Drumbeat was the first movie in which he was billed as Charles Bronson. And Drumbeat is a fantastic Western, one of Bronson's best performances. In fact, I think that he's good enough in that where that role could have gotten him an uh, 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 Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. And it should have launched him into stardom, but it didn't at the time. But Drumbeat is a fantastic Western. If you're a Bronson fan, you really need to see it. If you're not really a Bronson fan, but you like Westerns, that's when you should really see just because it's a great Western. So Drumbeat is my pick for the best Bronson movie of the 1950s that you should see. My pick for the best Bronson movie of the 1960s would be, and again, I'm talking about ones in which he's, uh, would be, uh, once Upon a Time in the West. Again, that one, most people would consider that more of an ensemble one, but you know he really dominates that one as well. Once Upon a Time in the West, most people will say, will agree it's one of the great Westerns of all time. Some say it is the greatest Westerns of all time. And that's one that anybody interested at all in movies should see Once Upon a Time in the West. His entrance in that one too, just is mind blowing. It's so good. Yeah, that would probably... Uh, I would call that second place after the mechanic of the greatest Bronson on-screen entrances. But Once Upon a Time in the West, again, that's another one where he really, that opening scene, uh, you know, we first see him, again, that's another one where uh, the Bronson persona all the way through that movie. So the 1960s, my favorite Bronson movie that I would recommend would be Once Upon a Time in the West. For the 1970s, I have to call it a tie between The Mechanic and Hard Times. You know, we had talked about before, I, I love The Mechanic. He plays a hitman, one of the best scripts he ever worked with, a very strange psychological character, very disturbing movie. It's not really a, it's not really a straight, it's an action movie. It's not really a straightforward action movie. It's a very disturbing movie with a very disturbing ending. Uh, I don't want to give it away for the people who've seen it, but The Mechanic is a masterpiece, 1972. Other masterpiece from 1975 is Hard Times. Again, those two I have to, they're equal in terms of best Charles Bronson in the 1970s. Hard Times take place in the 1930s. He plays a bare-fisted boxer. It's a masterpiece. Best Bronson film in the 1980s, 10 to Midnight from 1983. A very sleazy, brutal cop movie. Very important film because at this point, Bronson was, I think he was 61, 62 years old. Most of his fans had also gotten older. And the fact that we didn't do that much of the theater, but 10 to midnight when it played cable TV and video cassettes, young people saw that movie and didn't know what hit them, turned them into a Charles Bronson fan. In fact, 
a lot of fathers and sons bonded with Bronson, bonded as Bronson fans when they first saw 10 to Midnight. So 10 to Midnight, uh, my favorite Bronson movie of the 1980s. It took Bronson to the next level. It created a new fan base for him. Again, a lot of teenagers saw Bronson in the 1980s and saw those brutal movies. Those movies proved that he could keep up with the times. You know, he wasn't this old guy making these outdated movies. He was back making these really vicious, violent movies. Uh, 1990s, my favorite movie of the 1990s for Bronson would be 1993's The Sea Wolf, a made-for-cable TV movie based on the Jack London adventure story. He plays a, a sort of a villain in that one, a very uh, vicious sea captain. My favorite of the latter-day movies, my favorite performance of his from the 1990s. So The Sea Wolf is my pick for the best Charles Bronson movie of the 1990s. Those are great picks. Thanks so much, Paul. Uh, neither of us have seen Drumbeat, so that's that's a great tip. Thanks very much. Yeah, you guys will love Drumbeat. It's it's on um, it's on DVD. Uh, Warner Archive, if you know them, they put out a really nice version. For years, it was very very hard to find. It was on VHS in the early days, but it was very difficult to track down. Right. One one question I I hope to get in. Uh, one of the things that I like to talk about on the podcast is. Um, the books that that his movies were based on or sometimes the novelizations and one of the things i love is when some of the movies he did are one book that's in a series uh like so for example saint ives uh, he played that character once but that character lives on in in other books and so i i love having those could have been bronson movies uh to read do do you have any that you just really wish he got a chance to play that character again, or they they would have turned that character maybe into a franchise? Sure. Um, of course, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, I don't know if you should make a sequel to that because it's such a great movie, but that would be great to see him in more of those um, uh, spaghetti westerns playing that very silent character going throughout the West. Uh, the Stone Killer is an interesting one. In fact, if you at the end of that movie, Bronson plays a cop uh, a tough, dirty, hairy type cop who um, investigates a case in Los Angeles and New York. That movie ends with him talking about, gee, this crime in Boston, Chicago, Detroit. So the idea with that one, the Stone Kill was supposed to be Bronson's version of the Dirty Harry, in which he would make a, a different movie every two years as that character. Unfortunately, the Stone Killer didn't do as well as they hoped, so they didn't make any more. But I would love to have seen the Stone Killer be a franchise with him fighting crime in different uh, notorious violent cities throughout the U.S. And then the last one would be Break Hot Pass. It's a, a Western, in which is a mystery. He plays a detective solving a mystery in that. That would have been really good to see um, a series of mystery Westerns with Bronson playing that character. So those would be my three choices of the ones that I wish had been franchises or sequels, et cetera. Oh, that's cool. The Stone Killer does have a sequel in book form. Yes. Uh, uh, I think John Gardner is the author, if, if memory serves. Yeah, John Gardner wrote the, uh, the original book. The original book is called A Complete State of Death. That's the book that became The Stone Killer. And um, have you, did you read that book, Ray? I, yeah, I have that one, but I don't have the other one. Okay. I hope to get the, I, and I forget the name of the other one. The other one is called, uh, is it The Corner Man, I think? I've got it in my notes. It's, it's escaping me. 
Yeah, I don't have my notes with that. I think it's called The Corner Man, but uh, you know, The Stone Killer is based on that novel, but they really changed it completely. Very little of that novel is in it. But The Corner Man, um, that one's good too. That one he's tracking down um, in London, uh, characters based on the craze. He's tracking down these twin uh, mob figures in London. So that would have been a good, uh, good movie too. Well, like Ray was saying, when we started this podcast and we discovered your books, we couldn't believe how uh, we had just hit the jackpot. There's just no other uh, source for information about Charles Bronson and his films that are as comprehensive um, or as interesting and well-written. So thank you very much for all the hard work you've done. And it brings me to my last question for you. And that is, can you give us and our, and our listeners a list of all of the books pertaining to Bronson and all of the commentary tracks you've done so that we can go out and get our hands on these? And then further to that, what are you working on next and what can we look forward to coming down the pike? So my books are Bronson's Loose, they're making the Death Wish films, and Bronson's Loose again on the set with Charles Bronson. And both of them are readily available on Amazon.com. Uh, very easy to find, very easy to track down. And in addition to my books, I've also done commentary tracks for many of the Charles Bronson films. And I try to do definitive commentary tracks. I do a tremendous amount of research. Uh, I talk about the scenes that were deleted, try to give a whole breakdown of what Bronson was going through at that period of his career, and talk about uh, where the films were shot, try to give a complete, exciting, uh, interesting commentary track. And the ones I've done are 10 to Midnight. That one is available uh, from 88 films in the UK and also Scream Factory in the US. Uh, Breakout, that one is available from the label Indicator in the UK. Cabo Blanco, that one is available from Kino Lorber in the US. The Valdez Hosses, a.k.a. Chino, that one is available from Indicator in the UK and Kino Lorber in the U.S. Uh, Death Wish 2, which is available from uh, Scream Factory in the U.S. That one's also uh, important because the Death Wish 2 has a very strong unrated version, which was very difficult to find, but it's now available on the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Uh, Death Wish 3, available from the U.S. label Scorpion Releasing. A double feature of Death Wish 4 and 5 from the label Umbrella in Australia. Uh, the Mechanic from the U.S. label Scorpion Releasing. Mr. Majestic from the U.K. label Signal 1 and from the U.S. label Kino Lorber. Uh, the Stone Killer from the US label Twilight Time, the Valachi Papers from the UK label uh, Indicator. And then I've also done Violent City, which will be out in early 2022 from uh, the US label Kino Lorber. And I'm currently working on The White Buffalo, which should be out in early 2022 from Kino Lorber. So that's a list of my commentary tracks. Amazing. And you said too, that you might be working on a, on a new book uh, with some of those other films. So we're just thrilled to read those. I'm excited that we got you on now before I delved into too many of these commentaries, I might've gotten a, a bit more starstruck than I already am, Paul. So <laughs> 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 it's great to have you here. 
Uh, any any last remarks, uh, Ray? Before we sign off, it's the men's hundredth birthday, and I'm really glad we had an opportunity to do this. And like you said, um, a conversation like this with a fellow, uh, well, beyond bronze enthusiast, um, it just reignites. It makes you want to. I'm gonna as soon as I'm out of the car here, it's like, which what am I gonna watch? I'm gonna have to go put something on. So I don't know. Do you want? Do we want to raise a toast to the man himself here on his hundredth birthday? Absolutely. Let's raise a glass. I got this special gift of of a very nice 18-year-old scotch and I think I couldn't imagine a better occasion. And let's raise a glass to uh, the to the king of of films, Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. Happy birthday, Charles. To Charles, to Charles Bronson, the greatest male star in cinema history. Happy 100th birthday in Badass Heaven. This has been Hard Times on Film. Right